First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Big T Trauma on Behind the Knife. Today we have an update on rib plate. And this is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm joined by two of my former co-fellows at the home of Big T Trauma at the University of Texas in Houston. We have Dr. Teddy Puzio, who is currently faculty at UT and assistant program director for the Acute Care Fellowship, and doctor and commander Jason Burrell, who is trauma medical director of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having us back. Before we go on, I think you have some exciting news that you need to share. I, in fact, do. I'm very happy to announce my new position at Duke University. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and truly excited to be working with such an amazing team. Oh, Patrick, as a former Tar Heel trainee, it really hurts my heart. <laughs> you say that, but I am... <laughs> You're going to get over it, Teddy. I'm happy for you. All right, so today we're going to talk about rib fractures and the latest data to help us decide whether or not we should play a patient. This is a fairly deep dive into a pretty nuanced topic. And if you haven't already, we highly recommend you take a listen to podcast episode 298, which was published in May of 2020. If you go to BehindTheKnife.org, you can search by topic or series. And in a month or two, we expect to have our brand new cutting edge websites and apps, which include both Android and iOS out and ready for use. This will make accessing all types of BTK content even easier. And in that prior episode I mentioned, Jane and I went through a fairly comprehensive review of rib fractures, including multimodal pain control, regional blocks, pulmonary toilet, BiPAP, even plating. Yeah. In, in fact, that episode, I saw the stats has been listened to 25,000 times. So it must be pretty good. Or at least no. one was good. <laughs> yeah, <there's it. laughs> All right. So let's take a moment to put this whole topic in context. There is a robust debate right now about rib plating. Some think the pendulum has swung too far and that too many patients are getting plated. Yeah, and to be clear, rib plating is definitely an important tool in our armamentarium as trauma surgeons, but it's definitely not for all patients. And the challenge is identifying who will benefit, and that definitely comes down to patient selection. And this can be challenging, uh, but we're going to do our best to simplify it using the most up-to-date data. And the first thing we want to assess for all our patients is the severity of the injury. And there are a number of different scoring systems out there and most help triage a patient and guide standardized management and even can tell us what level of care that patient should be admitted to. Unfortunately, none of these scoring systems are well validated or very generalizable and in the end cannot be used to predict which patients will fail non-operative treatment. And most scoring systems include some combination of the following features, which include age, frailty score, maximum incentive spirometry, subjective pain scores, the presence or absence of pulmonary contusions, and radiologic fracture pattern. And to quickly summarize, treatment consists of the following. Multimodal pain control, 
So ideally, minimizing opioids and appropriate use of regional blocks and epidurals, depending on what's available and and in use to your system. Aggressive pulmonary toilet with the incentive spirometer and maybe a flutter valve, and then non-invasive positive pressure ventilation when indicated. Again, most of that is in episode 298, so please refer back to that if you want a little bit more of an in-depth talk about those basics. Right. And ideally, patients should also get educated about rib fractures and what they should expect from recovery and the importance of participating in pulmonary toilet to avoid infectious complications. That's important, the coaching aspect of it. I think with that, let's review some of the terminology. Yeah, words mean things, right? So unfortunately, there's no agreed upon nomenclature to describe rib fractures, whether it's radiologically or in the operating room. And that's particularly unfortunate because it means that discussing rib fracture patterns and indicating surgery can be a bit challenging both to read in the literature and then to discuss particularly among surgeons of different centers. Right. And the one caveat to this is the radiologic definition of flail chest, which is defined as three or more consecutive ribs with two or more fractures in each rib. And so from a physiologic standpoint, that means that these rib fractures are floating. So if you take a deep breath in, your rib cage expands and your diaphragm drops, and this creates negative pressure and air to flow into your lungs. But when a patient has flail chest, that free-floating segment acts paradoxically and can move in the opposite direction of the chest wall. So it's important to note also, though, that paradoxical chest movement is not seen after a patient is intubated because of that positive pressure uh, from the ventilator. Agreed. So let's talk about displacement. This is important because rib fractures that are displaced may mean more severe injury, may be correlated with more pain, or at least that's how a lot of us interpret it. The degree of displacement is usually described by referencing the cortices of the rib. If the rib is non-displaced, the cortices are aligned. Those are the ones you're probably not going to see on chest x-ray, for example. If there's unicortical displacement, then the rib is partially displaced. So the cortices are not aligned, but the rib ends are still partially overlapping uh, in terms of the anterior-posterior or deep-to-superficial sort of description. And then displaced fractures that are then bicortically displaced means that the rib is fully displaced and often overriding, so the top of the rib is now over the bottom of the other rib. Um, and the cortices don't align at all. Displaced fractures, of course, are easier to see on on chest X-ray and can become more displaced over time. So that original CT uh, that you got two days ago doesn't necessarily mean that's what everything looks like now when you have multiple bicortical displacements. Displaced fractures can also lead to chest wall instability with volume loss, where the chest wall essentially caves in on itself. There's no specific term for this, but you usually know it when you see it and have this visceral reaction to how bad the fracture pattern is. Right. Right. Uh, I think it's been referred to as a stove in chest in some of the literature. Yeah, my, yeah. my word for it is, oh, yeah, if you see it, it looks like garbage. So I think it really is important to be able to describe where the fractures are, especially if you're thinking about plating or talking about it with your colleagues. And so for this, I break each side of the chest into five areas. And you can imagine these as spokes on a wheel that extend from the sternum anteriorly to the spine posteriorly. So a half circle and the five areas from front to back are anterior, anterior, lateral, lateral, posterior, lateral, and posterior. And this certainly isn't published nomenclature, but I think it's helpful when it comes to planning and to communicating. 
Yeah, it's pretty common jargon. So I think before we jump into our cases, we're going to cut to the chase. We're going to give you what you came for, practical indications for rib plating. And then we're going to go through the cases and the data. Right. We'll talk about these up front and then we'll circle back around as we go through each of the cases. And, and remember, these are general recommendations and there are some very important assumptions that we're making uh, when we make these general recommendations. One is that pain control and pulmonary toilet are both optimized, but the patient is still struggling uh, in both of those realms, that there are no contraindications to plating like severe traumatic brain injury or ongoing hemorrhage, and that we fully believe that respiratory failure is a direct result of the rib fractures and associated pain, not something else like, again, a severe pulmonary contusions. And so with that, we have three general recommendations when it comes to plating. The first is that all patients with chest wall instability, including flail chest, should be considered for plating. If they have actual or impending respiratory failure, then they should be plated. All right. So the second is that patients with multiple displaced rib fractures without chest wall instability should undergo plating if they have actual or impending respiratory failure and pain alone is not an indication. So we'll come back to that. And finally, patients with non-displaced fractures should not undergo plating. So remember, these are very general recommendations. Deciding who to plate is super complex and it requires experience. And there are countless patient-specific factors to take into account that we simply cannot cover on this single episode on the podcast. And for that reason, we highly recommend reviewing each case uh, with a group of experienced surgeons, almost like you would as part of a complex case conference or a tumor board. It definitely helps to bounce off these individual cases with your colleagues and help support that decision to either plate or not plate. Patrick, I could not agree more with that. Other less common but legitimate indications for plating include patients with shards of bone that are sticking into their lung or those with non-union fractures. It's also reasonable to have a slightly lower threshold for performing rib plating if you're already in the OR, like if you're there for some other reason like a retaining the thorax of action. Yeah, sometimes that's referred to as rib plating on the way in or on the way out because of another indication for thoracotomy specifically. Okay, let's use some of those cases to flesh out the recommendations and then go into the literature. So, Teddy, are you ready here? Yep, let's do that. Okay. A 40-year-old man falls off a ladder and presents with a clinical flail chest. This imaging shows segmental and displaced fractures of the left ribs 3 through 9 and also a small hemothorax. And he has no other injuries, but he's really struggling to breathe despite supplemental oxygen and multimodal pain control and everything else that you've done. Thanks for definitely tossing the softball to start us off. But this You're welcome. is a very, a very clear cut case where this patient should be plated. Without a doubt, flail chest is the most widely accepted reason for rib plating. Now, the literature is fairly clear on this, although it's somewhat underwhelming. But guidelines from East that were published in 2017 and the Chest Wall Injury Society in 2020 both recommend plating for flail chest. Yeah, that's right. There are a large amount of non-randomized trials out there with variable quality data. A lot of it would be considered lower level of evidence. I'm not trying to make any assessments of the quality of the study itself, but it's just a lot of them are low numbers without a lot of high-level evidence to add to this assessment and this recommendation. And the vast majority of these studies support rib plating in patients with an unstable chest wall. Unstable chest wall being the keywords. 
when it comes to randomized controlled trials, there are only four to date. And three of these are small single institution studies completed a while ago, 2000 to 2013. And then the fourth is the larger study that was just published last year. So a Cochrane analysis reviewed the three small trials and determined that surgical treatment was preferable to non-surgical management in reducing pneumonia, chest deformity, tracheostomy, duration of mechanical ventilation, and length of ICU stay. And then, of course, further well-designed studies with a sufficient sample size are required to confirm these results and to detect possible surgical effects on mortality. We should note that one of these studies also used UJ struts to fix the ribs, and another one used wires, and those techniques for rib fixation have very widely been replaced by plating, which in, in I think all of our assessment is the superior way of fixating the ribs, which is why it's taken over as the technique. All right. And as you mentioned, Brill, the quality of these studies varies widely. And if you want to read up on any of these papers for yourself, you can check out the show notes. It's pretty much an up-to-date list of the most important papers in rib plating. Now, the very best trial on rib plating for patients with an unstable chest wall was published last year in JAMA by Dagan et al. And it's titled The Operative Versus Non-Operative Treatment of Acute Unstable Chest Wall Injuries. It was a multi-center randomized trial with 15 sites in the U.S. and Canada. And importantly, inclusion criteria were patients between the age of 16 and 85 with displaced rib fractures either flail chest or non-flail chest with severe chest wall deformity, which included any of the following. Severe greater than 100% displacement of three or more ribs, marked loss of thoracic volume with greater than 25% volume loss of the involved lobed, overriding of three or more rib fractures by a minimum of 15 millimeters each, and finally, three or more rib fractures with ribs protruding into the lung parenchyma. So these are some pretty legitimate injuries. These are legitimately unstable chest wall. And they had 207 patients enroll, 108 of which underwent surgery. So this is a big trial. And the primary outcome was ventilator-free days in the first 28 days following injury. Secondary outcomes included mortality, length of stay, and rates of complications like pneumonia. So results showed a trend towards more ventilator-free days in the operative group, although this was not statistically significant. So again, just a trend. But the authors did look at a subgroup of patients who were mechanically ventilated at the time of a randomization, and here they found a significant increase in ventilator-free days in the plating group. Mortality was higher in the non-op group, although the numbers were small. So six patients died uh, without plating and none with plating. So finally, rates of the complications such as pneumonia and length of stay were similar groups. This is a fantastic trial, and as far as I am concerned, this is the most important trial for patients with unstable chest wall to date. Uh, but the results are somewhat uh, contradictory to the previous literature in that there was no significant differences in time spent on the ventilator, length of stay, or rates of pneumonia. In fact, if you look at the non-ventilated patients, there was no difference in any outcomes whatsoever when comparing operative versus non-operative intervention. So I guess the real question is, does this prove that plating is less helpful than previously thought or that this study was just underpowered? Yeah, that's the question. And really, this is up for debate. There are two other findings from the study that I think are important to mention. First, patients who required early mechanical, mechanical ventilation had worse outcomes and higher complications compared with non-ventilated patients. 
regardless of the treatment they received. This underscores the importance of a patient's respiratory status when you're evaluating them for severity of injury when thinking about rib plating. And then second, operative treatment was generally associated with a low rate of complications, which I think is important. In fact, operative and non-operative groups had an equivalent rate of reoperation. This is in line with previous literature and confirms that rib plating is generally a safe operation with relatively few complications. All right. So that case in the literature discussed supports our, our first general recommendation that all patients with chest wall instability, including flail chest, should be considered for plating. And if they have actual or impending respiratory failure, then they should be plated as plating may improve outcomes. In other words, you can't just look at the CT and decide whether you should plate your patient. You actually have to look at your patient. And I think that was a well that we had fallen into for a number of years. So let's move on to another case. And Burrell, before we go on to the next one, I yeah. think what Teddy just mentioned is so important in the sense that the patient's respiratory status is so critical when it comes to making these decisions. And that this large study we just talked about really bore that out in the sense that there was really no difference in, in anything for non-ventilated patients, but that patients who were ventilated did, again, this being a subgroup, show some benefit with plating. And so again, I think we'll talk about it for these next cases too, that respiratory status is paramount. And for the vast majority of patients that we see with these inclusion criteria that they listed off for this trial, again, very unstable chest walls, they're going to be having some problems. Yeah, these are the sick ones. And so those are oftentimes, at least anecdotally, and in, in, in my practice, for instance, they're usually intubated in the ICU. And those are the ones that we're taking to the OR these days to do plating. Yeah, I agree. And that, I think, does remain a, a more clear indication uh, than these others we'll discuss. Speaking of which, next case. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's the same guy or a similar guy, 40-year-old man who falls off a ladder, still has left-sided rib fractures, but this time he has partially displaced posterior fractures of ribs three through nine and a pneumothorax that was successfully treated with a chest tube. He has no other injuries, but he does have a lot of pain, and that's despite a very robust multimodal opioid-sparing pain regimen. Patrick, should we play this guy? Right. And so this is Patrick. Yeah, yeah, right. I get the, the hard one. So this this is really the question, right? And this is what we're gonna try to suss out here on this episode is do these folks who are not in the ICU, not on the vent, are they gonna benefit from going to the OR? And we all love going to the OR, throwing on some plates, getting the drill out. But uh, to answer this question, let's go to the literature and 
if you dive in on this, you're going to again find that there are, are countless non-randomized trials, and most of which of these are really not terribly useful, especially in this patient population compared to the flail chest population. And you're also going to find uh, countless systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And honestly, it's shocking if you go back to the literature and see how many of these have been pumped out using relatively low quality data. But do have three relatively recent uh, randomized trials in which the authors uh, uh, should be commended for putting a whole bunch of good work in. So let's review each of these. Um, Burrell, I think you're going to talk about the first one. Sure. Yeah. And I think the earlier literature, a lot of small observational cohorts, some of even with retrospective data, that's what we had at the time. But as this has advanced, and now we have a few more recent and slightly more robust data sets to go off of. The first is Parachi and colleagues. So this was published in Journal of Trauma in 2019. The title is A Multicenter Prospective Controlled Clinical Trial of Surgical Stabilization of Rib Fractures in Patients with Severe Non-Flail Fracture Patterns, aka non-flail. Gotta have a good acronym. Mm-hmm. It's a multi-institution trial run by the Chest Wall Injury Society. 110 patients were enrolled with more than three bicortically displaced rib fractures with two or more pulmonary derangements despite multimodal pain control and regional anesthesia. Primary outcome was pain at two weeks. Interestingly, this is a big deal, the authors decided a priori that the trial would include two arms, randomized controlled and observational, and that decision was made by the patient. And just different study design. After determining the two groups were no different in terms of severity of injury, the authors then decided to combine the analysis for the results section. Yeah, that one really scrambles my brain. The bias is just, it's simply immeasurable. And in the end, it's impossible to know how this affects the outcomes. It's not really a randomized controlled trial when you do combine stuff like that. Right, agree. The, the one subgroup was randomized, but the majority of patients were not. Anyways, they, they found a modest, at least statistically significant, decrease in pain in the operative group at two weeks, but not a difference in overall narcotic consumption, length of stay, time on the ventilator, rates of pneumonia, maximum encephalometry scores, or disability. Yeah, so that's a lot of things that were not different. And so again, interesting as well in terms of how they evaluated that data in this trial. And there's a lot to dig into. Again, the papers are in the show notes. I highly encourage folks to take a look at that. So we're the next study. This one's titled Rib Fixation in Non-Ventilator Dependent Chest Wall Injuries, a Prospective Randomized Trial. It was published in J-Trauma in 2022 by Morasco and colleagues. And this study included 124 patients with greater than or equal to three consecutive rib fractures with displacement and or pain despite optimal treatment. And of note, compared to the prior study that Jason has went through, pulmonary dysfunction was not required as enrollment criteria. And patients were only enrolled if the provider felt that there was clinical equipoise, which is interesting as well. Now, the primary outcome for this study was pain at three months, and results showed no difference in pain at three months. Secondary outcomes were notable for increased return to work at three and six months in the patient to around rib plating and no difference in length of stay or mortality between the two groups. Uh, of note, there was a significant crossover between both groups making these results much harder to interpret. Yeah. 
That's tough. All right. So I'm going to tackle the last one. <laughs> the last one's titled Randomized Controlled Trial of Surgical Rib Fixation to Non-Operative Management Severe Chest Wall Injury. So this was published by one of our colleagues, David Meyer, in the Annals of Surgery this year. This was a study of 84 patients with radiographic, but not clinical flail chest, or five or more consecutive rib fractures, or any fracture with bicortical displacement. Again, no pulmonary dysfunction was required for enrollment in the study. The primary outcome that we looked at was length of stay. So interestingly, results showed increased length of stay in the operative. Secondary findings included increased opioid use in the plating group and no difference in return to work or normal physical activity at any point. Of note, the study was under power due to difficulties with enrollment, some of which occurred during COVID, and really just illustrates the difficulties in enrolling patients for surgery uh, in a randomized controlled fashion. So. Yeah, and, and trauma patients at that, where we're right. trying to find out on day one, who is this person? And day two is, can we contact family members? And day three is then, can we get the family members to provide consent for a surgery? So yeah, dif- difficult to pull these off. Overall, you know, the three trials that we just discussed, um, I would describe the the conclusions that we can draw from these as underwhelming. So it's important to remember that these patients without flail chest, without an unstable chest wall, these patients were not intubated. And only one trial of the three used pulmonary dysfunction as one of the inclusion criterion. So this population does match our patient who fell off of the ladder once we revised into scenario two. Right. So our patient fell off the ladder, multiple displaced fractures aggressively treating pain, aggressively working on the pulmonary toilet, but still in a lot of pain, but not needing intubation or with impending respiratory failure. And so these studies tell us that patients should not be plated for pain alone. It's difficult to tease out the respiratory side of it, but not for pain alone. Yeah. So I think if you take them all together, like we said, if studies together do not show a meaningful improvement in pain, quality of life, or return to work. Right. And it is important to note that we do not know if patients with multiple displaced rib fractures with respiratory problems, like increasing the heated high flow, you're adding BiPAP, you're thinking about intubating on their chest x-ray, it looks worse. Do those patients benefit from plating? So let's say this guy that we had, he rates his pain 10 out of 10 on post-injury day one, despite optimal treatment, his maximum incentive spirometry is 500 cc's and he's now dependent on heated high-flow nasal cannula. This is entirely anecdotal, but this patient very well may benefit from plating. Yeah, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater completely, yeah. right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. In any right. And so that's why we recommended what we did, which I would describe as a more conservative recommendation than some of the big society guidelines out there right now. Yeah, but on, it was, yeah. on new literature. Yep. Just to summarize, Patients with multiple displaced rib fractures without flail chest or without chest wall instability should undergo plating if they have actual or impending respiratory failure. But pain alone is not an indication until I put them on high flow nasal cannula so that I can then plate them. (laughs) That's very true. And I think it's important to point out with all of that said, we really feel like it's important to commend the authors of these trials for the... Absolutely insane amount of work that it goes into a randomized controlled trial with an intervention that's surgery. Mm-hmm. The results really underscore the challenge of running a randomized controlled trial in surgery. And it's 
but this is a really important and work and much needed in our field. Yeah, I, I agree. I'll echo that. Any judgments that we may weigh here are judgments against the data and the conclusions you can draw from that, not anything against um, the amount of work that was put into all of these studies. The three of us were part of Dave Meyer's recruiting efforts from time to time, and it's extremely tough having witnessed a lot of that firsthand ourselves. Yeah, and I absolutely 100% agree with that. A ton of work, ton of effort, thanks to the authors for doing so. And I think that if you get 20, 30 trauma surgeons in a room and go through any of these cases and talk in detail about these indications that we're suggesting, you're going to get a lot of debate. And that's good, healthy debate. And so there'll be more literature that comes out to help determine who may or may not benefit from plating. But that's all that's out there for now. We recently had a battle royale about IO access for trauma. And uh, I think we may need to do another head-to-head kind of thing with some plating uh, cases and get some folks on both sides of the aisle to weigh in. So thanks for hanging in with us on this deep dive. Again, we know it's heavy on the literature side, but important in that sense. All these papers, as I mentioned, are in the show notes, and we researched this pretty heavily. As such, you can be assured that at least now, that is an up-to-date list of the most important trials. Let's wrap it up by reviewing our very general recommendations for plating. So number one, all patients with chest wall instability, including failed chest, should be considered for plating. If they have actual or impending respiratory failure, then they should be plated. Number two, patients with multiple displaced rib fractures without chest wall instability should undergo plating if they have actual or impending respiratory failure, but pain alone is not an indication. And finally, number three, patients with non-displaced fractures should not undergo plating. Again, these are general recommendations. Thanks for joining us. Teddy, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.